Father, we thank you for the mothers uh, who we, you've given us, who you have placed in our lives, that they have given us so much insight and wisdom and care and comfort, and they're so consoling. Uh, Father, we lift them up to you. We pray that you would warm their hearts, knowing that you have given them a, given them a special burden to raise the next generation in their younger years. We would ask that you would bless them this day, that they would walk away from here knowing that you love them and no matter what problems they run to in their lives with the children and husbands, that you are for them and you wish to bless them. So, Father, we, we ask that you would watch over them, protect them still as they go through uh, the rest of our lives here. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you guys can go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> You know, my mother, she was five foot one, married to a Marine. Uh, he used to be a military police in the Marine Corps. And I can remember she was so exhausted all the time because there were four boys all under age 10, you know, that we were just, just wreak mayhem uh, in the house. And shower glass doors were broken and... A shotgun was set off and went through a door in the house. And I mean, just all fighting all the time, four boys. And I can remember one Sunday morning. Now, we, we had given up going to church. It was just, just too difficult. And one Sunday morning, we were roughhousing. And in our house, we could run through the front room, go in the hallway, through a bedroom, and back through the kitchen, and back through the hallway. And we'd do this circuit, you know, going around chasing each other. And... And my mom, she just wanted to sleep. She just wanted glorious sleep. And she called us in. Back then, you could use what was known as the belt. And uh, she said, bring me the belt. And she's laying in bed. And she held it in her hand. She doubled it over. She goes, do you see this? And we, we all sit there. Yes, we see that. You know, we're all lined up. She goes, don't make me use this. And we left and we were calm the rest of the afternoon. And she just went back and she got some sleep. You know, my poor mom, so small. And of course, when we were in middle school, we towered over her in even middle school. So there wasn't much she could say after that. But when dad came in, she always said, don't make me tell your father. You know, so you guys all remember those types of events, I'm sure. And we always had arguments, and that's where we're going to continue in Acts chapter 15 with the arguments, the sharp disagreements here. And if you want to take out your Bibles, and if you take any notes, that would be good. Uh, And let's go ahead and pray before we get started. Father, we, we thank you again for mothers. Bless them this day. We also thank you for your word, that it guides us through this world, and it gives us a hope, an everlasting hope. It also points out to us difficulties that those who have gone before us have experienced and we can learn from their examples how they handle them and also from their mistakes. We would ask, Lord, that you would give us insight and wisdom into the problems in the church in the first century and how we can avoid them and encourage others to do the right thing. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts, or excuse me, chapter 15 of Acts, Paul and Barnabas, they had a very great dispute with men who came from Judea. They were called Judaizers. They came down uh, to Paul and Barnabas in, in the churches there up in Antioch in that area. 
uh, of the world and they, they simply said you must be circumcised in order to be saved. Yes, you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you also need to follow the laws of Moses. And that's chapter 1, or excuse me, verse 1 in chapter 15. It says, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And so I gave you four things with that. In this verse, there were arguments, customs, circumcision, and salvation. This is dealing with the very idea of salvation. How are you saved? Is it by faith or is it a combination of works and by faith? And I defined the arguments, how there are three types of arguments, debate, an attorney in a court of law, and also heated disagreement. Those types of arguments take place. And I talked about our arguments sinful, and they can be. And are we going to have arguments in our glorified body? Not with each other, but I think with those who still or in their human bodies, their uh, corporal bodies here on earth. I think we might during the thousand-year reign of Christ. And in heaven, certainly, there will be no arguments because up there, there will be compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and we will be forgiving of each other. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 says that. And the thing that wraps those all together is perfect love, which brings perfect unity. So we're not going to have disagreements up there. We're always going to know what the will of God is. And then for us, the reasons that we have arguments is the result of the fall, spiritual battles, pride, and we have arguments to show which one has God's approval. And remember the setting that was taking place there in the church. You had the Gentiles who came to faith, and then you had the Jews who had followed the laws of Moses, and you're trying to incorporate the two, and there was this wall of hostility between the two because the Gentiles, they lived pagan lifestyle. But the Jews said, no, you have to follow these customs and rules and circumcision in order to be saved. Because after all, if somebody wasn't circumcised under the law of Moses, you were to be cut off from your people. You were not to have any fellowship with them. And so they they transferred that, the Jews did, into the church. And of course, we had this great council in Acts chapter 15 where it kind of settles the issue. Verse 2, I'll just read through it again. We went through verse 6. But give it context. In verse 2 of chapter 15, it says, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. And some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. And so they presented their case and the apostles and elders got together and go, you know, what do you, what do you think about this? What is the Spirit saying to us and ultimately to the church? Now, remember, the circumcision did not come from the law originally. It was uh, commanded by God to Abraham and all of his household. Then later it came through the law of Moses. And what was wrong with how the Judaizers handled this particular subject Well, what they did is they felt it was the right doctrine to go to these other churches, not only to give the gospel, but to instruct the Gentiles on the ways of Moses or the law of Moses. They didn't consult with the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. 
They just went out and did it. In other words, they developed this doctrine. They transferred it from the Old Testament to the New Testament, went to churches and started teaching it. There's people that do this today. We've had people in the church like that where they've just decided they're going to teach something inside the church that everybody needs to do, and they do it in a subversive manner. Uh, whether it's people in the past, maybe you've heard me talk about it, where some men have gone through the church and said, uh, men, they must not wear hats inside church. And women, they must have long hair. And women must not wear jewelry. And, and they just put this yoke on the people in the church. And whenever we found out about it, we went to them and said, you need to cease and desist. Do not teach these particular doctrines. And so they didn't come and ask me or the elders in the church or the leaders in the church, is this okay to be taught? They just simply went into the church and started teaching this like one couple or one individual at a time. And, of course, that's uh, providing a platform for dissensions and factions and envy and all of those things that are the works of the flesh that are talked about in Galatians chapter 5. And so they decided to settle it by taking it to the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem. And that was a good course of action. Now the debate is over, this idea of circumcision in the law of Moses, but it came down to four things that the apostles and the elders said, you ought to follow these four things inside the church. And they were to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now, those four things would have been particularly offensive to the Jews. One of them is a direct sin from both the Old Testament, New Testament, the sexual immorality, not to be involved in that at all. The other ones are open to interpretation. Like, for instance, eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that Paul said, which I'll probably touch on later, Paul said, an idol is nothing, and food sacrificed to the idol is nothing. And if you want to eat, give thanks to God and eat if it's food sacrificed to idol. Now, again, the context here is you would have these pagan idols that would be set up in these pagan temples, and they would sacrifice animals as well. And so you would have these animals brought in as a sacrifice, and of course they would be the best animals. And those animals were sacrificed, and then the meat went to the temple butcher shop. And then you could buy the best meats at the temple butcher shop and take them home. Now, if you were a believer, and whether uh, if you were a Gentile believer, you would go there to the temple butcher shop, the pagan temple butcher shop, bring the beef home, and look at these fillets. Oh, these fillets are just wonderful. And you set them up on the little Weber barbecue pit right there, and you cook them up, and you invite some Jewish friends who became Christians over to eat. And they say, oh, look at the meat. Oh, you know, and kosher, they're thinking kosher in their mind. Where did you get the meat? The temple butcher shop. Oh, anathema, we can't eat that. What are you doing? Oh, this is such a sin. And so there would be this argument going back and forth, And Paul says, look, if somebody is stumbled by the food that you eat, don't eat the food when they are there. Don't let what you think as good be spoken of as evil. And so an idol is nothing. But for the Jews' sake, it was imposed on the Christians. Now, it wasn't a hard, fast command, but it said, just avoid these things. Avoid meat, which has been sacrificed to idols. 
Now, the sexual immorality, it's in the Old Testament and New Testament. And if you're an adulterer, you'd be stoned in the Old Testament. That tested Jesus with that in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it tells us that this is the reason that God's wrath is coming upon the world is because of sexual immorality and in all of its forms. And then from Meat of Strangled Animals, I once saw a book entitled How to Prepare Roadkill. <laughs> and it's like, okay, you know, if it's fresh and it's on the ground and, you know, it's a deer or something like that, a rabbit or possum and... Hey, it's all good. And, and so if somebody did that, you were eating the meat of strangled animals, basically, or crushed animals. And it was this idea that in the Old Testament, in the Torah, you ate a uh, exsanguinean, I think is the term for it, where you take out the, the blood of the animal before you eat it. And if it's roadkill, the blood probably isn't going to be too evacuated from the meat that's there. And, and so it could become an offense to the Jews. And so don't do that. Today, if you go to different parts of America and also over in Ireland, we saw this when we were in Ireland years ago uh, doing some outreach. And we would go to like a restaurant uh, in the city and they would have everything lined up, kind of like a little smorgasbord, but they would get it for you. And you would have your potatoes, which would be there, and your sausage, and then your blood sausage, which is made of blood. And it looks like cooked blood. And you can get that and put that with your eggs and your hash and whatever else you want. And you could eat all of that. And so there are cultures that eat blood sausage. And that's a Catholic country, so to speak, over there. And they would be considered Christians by the world standard. And so you have these suggestions that this is offensive to the Jews. And since there are Jews and Christians in the same church, please don't bring an offense intentionally by doing these things. And so continuing on with this debate that was taking place, this uh, addressing of these problems in the Christian church, Peter speaks up first and then James addresses he spoke up second and then the apostles and the elders they cleared up the issue as a unit now when you're having a debate or you're having a discussion it's this idea that it has to be formulated in a particular way and there are different types of cases or arguments that you can make if you do any research on it there are uh, these Techniques, I would say. Techniques of arguing. There's the toolman, the Rogerian, and the classic uh, modes of making an argument. And they're usually divided into four or five different segments. When you're trying to win somebody over to your argument. Now, going through seminary, they gave us one of these in a, a Christian format. And that was, and you've heard me mention this before. This was given uh, to me in a book and a teacher that I had by, his name was Dr. Donald Forson. And he said, in all churches, when we make decisions, we use four things. We use scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. And it doesn't have to be in any particular order like that. But we use those four things to determine how we're going to practice something in the church. And that was the point of Dr. Thorson's book. And we had to write papers on it, that type of thing. And I saw the value in that because we do do that. And you've heard me mention this before, but it is used 
here in this passage. The first thing that is made an appeal to is experience. It says here in verse 7, and after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. So Peter stands up and he says, now I want you to listen to me. He says, brothers, you know that some time ago, that's a key phrase, he's going, you know, in the past, this has been our experience. God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. And so he says, this is our experience. This is what God has chosen to do, and I'm relating the experience to you. Then there is an appeal to reason. He starts reasoning with them. He says, now then... Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the, of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So he's reasoning with them. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. <clears throat> And he goes on here where James makes an address. He speaks up. Verse 13, he says, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. So he confirms this idea of experience and reason. He's deferring back to Peter saying, see, now we can take this as gospel, so to speak. This is what God has done. Then he makes an appeal to scripture. And this involves uh, using a rebuttal. In verse 15, he says, the words of the prophet are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it. <clears throat> and the remnant of men may seek the Lord, or that the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. And this is taken out of Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. So in your argument, you can go experience, or you can go scripture first, but he goes experience, and then he says, this is what the scripture has to say, an appeal to scripture. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> And so this idea, it goes on to say, using scripture, appeal is made to tradition. Like, what have we done? Have you ever heard the phrase, we've always done it this way? And sometimes that's good, and sometimes that's bad. Because if you've always done it that way, and you've done it through experience and seeing that this is the best way it works, there's some validity in that. There's some veracity, some truthfulness in that. And you can count on that. Somebody who's a tradesman has gone through several different errors to get to the way that they do something. Or there's an order in which they follow to get a particular job accomplished. And when they're teaching an apprentice, a journeyman teaches an apprentice, they walk them through the steps and they tell them, this is why we do it this way. So you're going to tradition. In verse 20, and by the way, that's also experience. Instead, we should write to them telling them to, and here are the four things, Abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, 
from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So this is the tradition that we've had. So you have these four things, experience, reason, scripture, and tradition. Now, as I previously said, the Torah implies that an animal must be killed. And this is the word, exsanguination. That's where you let the blood flow out of the animal. Has anybody here ever witnessed, been a part of, or uh, gone to a slaughterhouse? Slaughtering animals? A few of you guys have. <clears throat> I, I have been uh, to a slaughterhouse where they take a cow and they string it up and they let the blood go out and they take chainsaws. I mean, it's just, it, it's quite a th- it's quite an event uh, to watch if you've never watched anything like that. But they would definitely let the blood pour out and the blood would go out into a drain. Now, I don't want to be too morbid, but this is the way most of the world lives. We don't. We don't go to the store and there's the meat and go, oh, look, they grew some meat. No, they had to kill an animal in order to get that meat to us. And so the rest of the world understands this. I think in our culture... We like to regulate that to the sidelines, that we don't want to talk about that type of thing. But especially back then, that's what they do. <clears throat> Recounting a trip to Uganda, first thing in the morning, you would drive by uh, these different little villages, and they would have this set up. It was an enclosure of brick or block. You had an entrance and an exit. You had two pipes coming up with the connecting pipe in the middle. And on that, you would have a hook. And that's where they'd go and slaughter the goats every morning. And as you drive through the town in the morning, they would be holding up half a goat or a quarter goat. And like, who wants their goat? You know, and you could buy the meat right there and take it with you. <clears throat> and so they would also do that same thing. They'd hold the animal upside down and they would allow the blood to go out. Now, we are not to judge somebody based on what they eat. If they want to eat bugs, like in the coming decades, you may have that choice. Uh, how many have eaten insects in here purposefully? One, two, three. Ah, if you ever get the experience and you go down to Mexico, you can get grasshopper. And uh, they're called chupolinis and they're crispy, kind of like, um, what are they, breadcrumbs, you know? You go to Olive Garden. And instead of putting the breadcrumbs on your salad, you can get some chupolinis. And it's like, oh, that's a little crunchy. And you, you chew those things. And they're a little spicy. They're, they're soaked in a hot brine <clears throat> type of solution. And they eat them. And I've shown you pictures before of over in Cambodia where they have insects laid out. And you can eat all the insects you want. And we are not to judge people based on what they eat, <clears throat> what they consume. But one... Uh, you know, it's clearly in the minds of the Jews, it was sinful. So these four things, the apostles and the elders, they just said, this would be good to observe this particular practice. Now, how would you apply this type of argument to everyday life? Now, we have to learn how to argue with somebody. And I don't mean arguing you know, where you're going back and forth, but how to present an apologetic for why we believe what we believe. And there are different methods to go out and witness to somebody 
you know, there are the four spiritual laws. God has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, that type of thing. You can tell somebody about that. You can just give the good news and the bad news. You can do that. Are you a good person, bad person? You can do that. But you, you have to learn how to approach somebody. <clears throat> for instance, it's probably not a good idea to go up to somebody and say, you know, the whole world's under condemnation and you're going to hell. How would you like to learn or would you like to learn how to prevent yourself from going to hell? You're probably not going to get a lot of ears listening to you if you do that. And if you engage somebody and you start talking about God and almost everybody wants to have a conversation about spiritual things. I have learned that over the years. <clears throat> if you just get the proper inroad at the proper time, they want to talk about it. They want to have a conversation because they do have their own beliefs. Whether they're based in scripture or they just made them up or they're from some Eastern mystic religion, whatever the case might be, people like to talk about spiritual things. Even the atheist likes to talk about spiritual things. They want to prove their point that there are no spiritual things. And, and so you can talk to them about that at the right time. You just don't bring it up like in the middle of a child's birthday party. Hey, are you going to hell? Or are you going to heaven? No, it's, it's the wrong time. You know, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us there's a time for everything. And so we want to make sure we appeal to certain things. Like you will appeal to your own experience. One of the biggest things that they used to tell us is give somebody the word of your testimony. Tell them your testimony. Tell them how you got saved. And that can lead you on a road to giving them some scripture. Although you don't have to use the address of the scripture, you can just recite it to them because you have it in your heart. Because Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I've hidden God's word in my heart that I might not sin against him. But also for the purposes of communicating the gospel, you want to know what the Romans wrote is. You want to know what the Bible has to say about the fate of humanity. <clears throat> and so you have your experience. You can give them your experience. Now, let, let's take a, a subject that you would want to convince somebody of. Now, I'm not going to go to one of those pejorative subjects which are out there, but I think one that's more uh, ironic, more in the middle, uh, like homeschooling. Now, there are militant homeschoolers. I mean, just Satan is in the schools, you know, and you got to get your kids out of the schools, which today is probably closer to the truth than you might realize. But there's this idea of homeschooling and maybe you've all known people who have homeschooled maybe you've homeschooled yourself but then there are people who put their kids in secular school so if you're going to argue make a defense i should say with somebody about homeschooling what would you say you, you'd start to say well you know my experience is when we were in school there was order and discipline to give you an example of that in my junior high school years Guess what they had in the VP's office? A paddle. And they would use it. And the kids that were disobedient, they got spanked. And they didn't ask the parents' permission. Later on, when my kids were in a Baptist school, we had to sign a document that either they spanked them or we come in and do it. One of the two. And it's like, oh, okay. You know, and, and we always said, no, we'll, we'll handle that, but we understand what's going on. So back in the day, you know, I remember uh, my neighbors that I grew up with, they went to parochial school and they'd talk about these nuns with the habits. 
habit of hitting the students with a ruler. You know, they, they would say, place your hands on the table like that, and they'd whack it with a ruler. My neighbors would tell me that. I'd go, wow, that is. And, and they're walking around in the black habit, you know, walking through the aisles and watching to make sure everything. You worked under the fear of the nuns, is what they said. And it was a terrible environment. But you say, in my experience... There was always order and discipline in the classroom. I I can remember pulling out a comb and combing my hair before class started. And Mr. Sherman, the Spanish teacher, took it away from me until the end of the day. You're not supposed to take out your comb or a brush in the class. Okay, you know, whatever the case might be. Now, some of these things were a little extreme. There's no question about it. But there was discipline. And there was basic instruction. Basic instruction in things like reading, writing, arithmetic, history, geography, finance, and science, and they were offered without political bias. You remember those days? It was given to us just straightforward. This is algebra, and the teachers rarely, if at all, talked about anything to do politically or morally. They just, just the facts, man. You guys know where that's from, right? Yeah. Joe Friday. Here's the one, Dragnet. I'm dating myself here. But this idea that you would have these subjects, just the basic subjects. And then there were moral guidelines that were strictly enforced, which aided in the creation of an environment conducive to learning. And so you'd say these in just a few words, these types of things. There was discipline. We had the basic instruction. And there was a, a morality that everybody shared inside the school. And it was strictly enforced. And if you didn't do it, you were kicked out of school. You were not only suspended, but you could be expelled if you didn't toe the line. And everybody learned and everybody grew. And that, that was my experience. Hopefully that was your experience as well. Now, what I've experienced, for instance, with my kids and grandkids is this is not the case. It's, you are perfect just the way you are. You're a disobedient little brat. You need, to, you need to be corrected on this. And in school now, you cannot impose any kind of discipline on the kid. And the kid can come up and yell against the teacher. I don't know if you've seen those videos, but they just talk in the face of the teacher. And the teacher can do nothing. And some of the teachers lose it. And they start punching on the kids. It's happening out there. It's, it's everywhere. And then the foundational subjects are lacking and they're being substituted for a social agenda, which is out there. <clears throat> I just saw a picture this morning going over my message, doing some research, <clears throat> and I saw a picture of a classroom. I think it was like a middle school classroom. And they took out the American flag and they had a gay flag and a BLM flag. And that was in the classroom. And so an ideology is being pushed in the secular classrooms and it's happening here in san diego across the country whether you agree with it or not it's taking place and so there's a lot of leftist social indoctrination and it is ubiquitous and the moral norms and ethical values are absent i can remember having a discussion i had this teacher i had this teacher twice i had them once in high school for journalism And then I had to take a journalism class in a junior college that I went to, and she had transferred to the junior college. She had gotten her master's and went to the junior college. And her name was Sharon Yap. If she's listening to this, hopefully she got the gospel sometime. But I I went into her office in the uh, junior college, 
And I said, and I was interested in maybe writing an article because we were going to take a bike trip from Maine to Florida and we're going to take pictures and what magazine could I submit it to and how would I do that? So I was talking to her about that and I'd I'd just become a Christian and I started witnessing to her. And she said, she crossed her legs and her arms while sitting in her chair as I began to speak. And then she said, well, if that's good for you, that's fine. And everybody has their own beliefs. And, and so there's no real moral foundation, which is out there. Journalism, go figure. She's a leftist or a liberal. But, it, but it's this idea that when I would talk to her, she said, like, everybody's views, not one is right. They're just all different. You have to ask yourself the question, and this is a pejorative in our culture today. Is there any one culture that is better than another? And I would say, yes, there is. The Judeo-Christian ethic, wherever it is employed, leads to stability. Every other culture leads to instability or things which are egregiously wrong or sinful according to God's word. And how do you understand that God's word is supreme over the rest? Because it's prophetic. It was delivered to us by God. How do we know that? Because it explains things in scripture that cannot be explained otherwise except by God himself and he gave it to us in written form and you can have a whole debate you can start with your experience and go to scripture and reason and tradition all those things why the bible is something to hold to but I'm dealing with this idea of homeschooling so homeschooling you start with your experience how it was and how you've seen it transform into what it is today with kids I think I uh, explained to you a few years ago, how I went to my granddaughter's school, my daughter called me up and said, I need you to come talk to the teacher and the principal. I said, what do I need to do? They're teaching kids how to become Muslims, but they're not teaching them how to become Christians. And so we went into the classroom. It was up in North County, sat down with the teacher, and they were given a curriculum by the state, what to teach, and they explained to them how to become a Muslim and the five pillars of faith and the Muslim and how you have to say this prayer and you can be evangelized to become a Muslim. And I said, do you also explain to the kids how to become a Christian? Do you do that? And of course they didn't. And then the principal was sitting there and he started folding his arms and crossing his legs and I could tell I was going to get nowhere uh, with this. But they will teach things of other cultures, but they will not teach the kids about Christianity. They will teach all the other world religions and how you can practice those. And those are okay and accepting. We need to be accepting of those, but not of Christianity because it's narrow-minded and bigoted and hateful. If you look into Islam, it is if you're using that standard, it is worse. They will throw homosexuals off of roofs. Uh, because they practice homosexuality Uh, they will burn people alive they will cut off hands and heads and i mean it's just horrible and the christians won't do that but it's the christians that are vilified and that all comes from this idea in education that everything is equal it is the same and of course it's not the truth so you start with your experience this is my experience this is where it has been and this is where it is today and then you go to reason what is the case of education today have you guys read anything on that? Have you, you guys seen any of that? As a result, there's disrespect and violence, and it has increased in our schools exponentially. Instruction in foundational subjects is lacking. You know, kids come out. You guys have seen man-in-the-street interviews, right? And, and did I tell you about the one that named three countries in the world? And they would say things like, um, what would they say? They would say, Asia, 
New Mexico, and they would name some other. And they don't even know what a country is, or even the continents. They were asked to name the continents, and they would name, name countries. They were asked to do simple addition, three times three times three. And you couldn't believe that these college students could not answer that. I think there was one out of about six that could answer it. And so these basic subjects, the foundational subjects, are lacking. Study in leftist social indoctrination. There are ubiquitous moral norms and ethical values are absent from uh, the educational system. Suicide is up amongst the youth. Total education effectiveness is reduced. The youth are less prepared for adulthood when they get out. You know, sometimes they stay at their parents' house for decades and they don't move on and they're just into video games and they're not socializing out there. What is it? Men from the age of, uh, I forget the ages, maybe it's um, 18 to 35, don't even have a desire. There's a certain percentage, like 40%, don't even have a desire to go out there and be married. And they, they just want to be single for the rest of their lives. And of course, I think uh, feminism adds a little bit to that. But you'd say, look at, I want to reason with you today. Is the educational system better in our day and age than it was back in when we were in school? Or was it better back then? And I believe, without a doubt, it was better back then. Even though there were some extremes, it was still better back then. The kids learned. Today, they're not learning. If you keep the people ignorant, then you can control them much easier. Then if you went to scripture, if you're debating this with inside a a Christian culture, how about you're supposed to discipline your children. So the discipline that are in schools, you're supposed to bring it into the home and into the schools. You're supposed to train them in what they should know so they can be effective adults when they get older. Uh, You should instill in them a moral ethic. Make sure they understand we are to be submissive to authority and teach them self-control and delayed gratification. If you teach the kids that, then those things are all taught in Scripture. If you teach them that, then they will be more prepared as being an adult. And then tradition. When we've had proper educational standards and discipline in the past, there has been fruitful outcomes. An individual received a proper education. Society benefits as a whole. And when there are biblical morals and standards instilled in the youth, they fare better socially. All of those things can be instilled in them in school. So if you go through making an argument or making a defense for why somebody should homeschool, all those things would be delivered in a homeschooling environment. And everybody benefits as a result of that. So that's how you use this type of argument. This is like a classical type of argument. And you want to give rebuttals to the opposition, you know, and the way that the opposition argues, you have to be able and prepared to do that. So you have to train yourself. Train yourself to talk to others just as Peter and John used the reason, scripture, tradition, and experience, all of those things to make the case for why we should follow certain doctrines and avoid other doctrines. So applying this first part here, when I gave you instruction last week applying this, I said, pray before you speak, before you talk to somebody. James chapter 3, you know, we, we also know that arguments arise because in James chapter 4 and the tongue and all of that, it, it, it's just something you need to pray that you have the right heart attitude, that you're not bursting out with emotion and so you just ask for a calm heart 
And then you can debate. And of course, the meaning of that is you simply ask questions. You don't lead the person, but you ask questions to get them to see and have understanding. Use experience, reason, scripture, and tradition. Uh, We want to remember that arguments are almost always based in selfishness. We want what we want. We don't care how it affects anybody else. We just believe this. We hold it dear to our hearts. And we can believe something sincerely, but we can be sincerely wrong. So where do we get truth from? We get truth from the scripture and from the tradition of the Judeo Christian ethic. So we have to be familiar with that. But in order to argue, in order to make a defense, you have to be familiar with the culture as well. We cannot be clueless on the culture and what's going on in the culture. Also, ask yourself in the midst of the argument, or better yet, before it breaks out, am I seeking this for my own gratification or for the benefit of others? It always should be for the benefit of others. That's Philippians chapter 2. You should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. And the greatest of God's kingdom is the servant of all. And if you're unable to resolve the issue, we want to have grace. We don't want to hold them in derision. We, we don't want to push them to the side. We still want to be able to maintain a conversation. <clears throat> and if it's not essential and ethical, immoral, consider letting the opponent have their way. Now, this last week, I had a conversation with a, a woman, a little older than I was, and it, it was a political conversation. I, I'm not going to focus on the political part of it, but I was trying to draw out of her why she held the particular positions that she, she did. And I'll, I'll tell you what it was. She brought it up. I was just... I was standing there, just having a conversation, nice conversation. She turns to me and she goes, oh, that Trump. And I said, what? 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 And she's, I just, I don't know if she said hate or can't stand them. And, and I'm just going, okay, she wants to talk. And so I'm going to let her talk. And <clears throat> this was after the CNN uh, I don't know if you guys saw that or not. But, and there's, again, there's going to be this whole debate leading up to the election. And it's just ad infinitum going on. But she wanted to talk. And so I started to employ some of these techniques with her. And I would do it by asking questions. And I said, okay, so I want to understand your position. So you would vote for Biden over Trump. Right? And she couldn't confirm that. She said, well, no. And I said, well, is the country better today than it was when he was president? And she shook her, no, but I just can't. I said, well, I'm not asking you if you can't. And it was congenial. You know, it was a, a good conversation. And she just couldn't commit. And I said, well, uh, are you for the transgender surgery on minors? I, I asked that. And I said, the president's promoting that. And she, no, no, I'm not for that. And I said, is the economy better or is it worse? Like right now, the interest rate and the inflation and all that. And, well, it was better back then. And I probably went through seven, eight different examples. She agreed with me on all of them. But at the end of it, I just can't vote. You know, and I... 
I said, okay, I, I just want to make sure I understand your position. And I said, I, I threw this in there. I said, um, let me ask you, if you were to vote for Trump instead of Biden, would you be looking after the interest of others rather than yourself because maybe it benefited more of the country during his presidency rather than Biden's? And, and she just couldn't acquiesce she just she had so much hatred in her heart she goes i know that's probably the right thing to do but i just okay i just want to establish that it's your own personal motives that are taking precedent over the benefit of everybody else and i kind of left it at that and she knew she goes you know you're probably saying everything that i should be doing but i just so i just had grace I just walked away with grace and I said, okay, I just want to understand. And that's not to promote Trump or Biden or any of that. It's the idea of engaging somebody in the culture with what they believe and hopefully lead them to at least starting with biblical principles and then ultimately to Christ. That's how we're supposed to do that. Now, the answer here, we have the apostles and the elders. They cleared up the issue. It says in verse 22, Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. The reason they did this is because in the Old Testament, several places, it says to establish something, you have to have two or three witnesses. Paul and Barnabas could have gone back even with letters and they could have said, you made up the letters. You did that yourself. And why are we still supposed to trust you? What they said. So they needed to send two other witnesses with them. They sent the following letter, the apostles and the elders, your brothers to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So right here, they're giving a rebuttal to those who are teaching these other doctrines. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm By word of mouth, what we are writing, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. Now, What about those who would have you follow the law today? Are they weaker or stronger, spiritually speaking? Somebody who would say, you should do this and you shouldn't do that, that's not spelled out in Scripture. They add hedges and rows, and they say, you need to walk down these things. One of the youth, her her boyfriend goes to a particular church where they don't have musical instruments. And, of course, they talk about that, her and her boyfriend, and... Of course, it's an argument from silence in Scripture that there are no instruments used in the New Testament in the church. Therefore, we can't use instruments in church in our day and age. That's how the argument goes. And so it's, they believe they're more spiritual 
if they do that. There's people who believe that if you meet on Saturday, you're more spiritual. There's people who believe that if you wear a coat and tie for men, uh, you're more spiritual. And for women, if they wear dresses, they're more spiritual. You get the idea. You put these hedges in rows or dancing. You can't dance. You know, I'm always aware if I go to a wedding and there's dancing, who's filming? Excuse me, who's phoning? You know, it's no longer filming. It just, I have to dance, you know, you know that, that type of thing. You just want it because people will use incriminating evidence and put it on Instagram and Facebook and everywhere else out there. And you just have to be careful because people look at that and they go, it's dancing. And they get hairs on fire, like how could they do something like that? And this is a pastor after all. And so you want to make sure you're, you're circumspect, but you want to make sure you're not stumbling those who are around you who get offended by that. And this is in Romans chapter 14, verses 12 through 23. I won't read the whole thing. But it's, it says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. Now, I've heard some people really object to this. And they would say, You mean that I'm supposed to stop doing something because somebody who's immature might get offended? Yes. I'm not doing it. I'm going to live my life. I have the freedom in Christ. Well, you have the freedom not to exercise that freedom as well and not stumble somebody else. And that's how God asks us to live. What will it hurt you to give something up for the sake of somebody else in their presence? Not that you have to give it up totally, but they may be completely offended by your actions when you commit them in their presence or if they know about it. And God says, if that's the case, don't. Don't carry out that behavior. And in this particular passage, it's dealing with what is eaten or drank. In verse 21, it says, It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. And that's hard for us. In, in our society, it's do what, you, do what makes you feel good. Do whatever you want. Have it your way. Uh, I think Frank... You guys know who Frank Sinatra is? Yeah, Frank Sinatra, he, he sang that song, right? Have it your way. Uh, or Burger King, uh, have it your way. Uh, or I did it my way. All of those things, that's what our culture teaches. Do it your way. And God says, no, consider others better than yourselves for their sake. And that is what love is. If we're not acting in love, we're acting in selfishness. And God says, no, it's better to act in love. And then also Colossians chapter 2 verses 18 through 23 talks about this, how people put up hedges and rows. Verse 21 of that passage says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because... They are based on human commands and teaching. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. And so no matter how many hedges you put up, no matter how many behaviors you adopt, it doesn't do anything in restraining a sensual indulgence. And so it doesn't help, which in turn can stumble somebody around you. And what did you do? You just put a yoke on somebody's neck. Follow this rule and you'll do better. No, God says, ah, you're in the flesh. And your flesh is going to remain until you die. And you're going to have a propensity to do what's in the flesh. And you just 
Call it the way it is. If you, if you don't have to do something in front of somebody else to keep them from stumbling, don't do it. And again, that is love. Now, there will always still be some who are disgruntled. Even though you might have a letter, established it by scripture, reason, tradition, and experience, there are going to be people who will say, I just can't do it. I just know I'm not doing it. Okay, well, if you don't want to do that, understand you're not acting in love. And you can point that out in a loving and gentle manner. Uh, Jude talks about individuals like this in verse 16 of Jude. Jude is just one chapter. talks about grumblers and fault finders. Have you ever complained about something? Well, none of you have. You're all spiritual in here. You've never complained about food in a restaurant. You've never complained about driving conditions on the roadway. You've never complained about the weather, spouse or friend or child. Never done any of that. And we are all guilty multiple times of that. You get exasperated. You know, one of the things we talked about in youth this last week, it's a hot topic, is euphemisms. Can, can you use euphemisms? And <laughs> I've taught about this before. And every time I, I speak on it, people say, well, I know what I'm saying. You know, and, and they get all upset. I, get, well, I, I just want you to know what you're saying when you're saying what you're saying. Like, for instance, the word gosh. The word gosh, it can be gosh golly gee you know you're really excited you just say that but then if you say oh my gosh then i ask what does gosh mean and if you look it up in the dictionary you don't have to do it right now but if you look it up in the dictionary it's a euphemism for god so when you say oh my gosh you're really throwing in a substitute for god's name and you actually mean god is what you mean and or a word like darn it i don't have to tell you what that is a euphemism for and, and, and so it, i the youth were they were asking me they said you know up at this other youth place they're, they're just being tyrants they don't want us to use euphemisms and i said really have you looked up these words and or oh my goodness what is goodness we, we know what goodness is but if you go down a couple definitions and you say oh my goodness it's a euphemism for god and you're actually substituting goodness for the word God and it's a euphemism and should you do that does that violate uh, what is it um, Ephesians 4.29 let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth but only what is helpful for the building up of others you know that, that type of thing and so I gave it to the youth I said you decide is that being euphemistically uh, speaking a, a speech that really reflects God or is it not? Or when we get frustrated and we start complaining and we, oh my, and you just throw in there whatever you want to throw in there. Is, is that good? Is that bad? And do we condemn others for use of that? And I, I left it with the youth. I said, you decide if you should use that you decide if you should complain or not you decide if you should use the euphemisms in that complaint now there is a time where you would call out to God and you would say oh my God you can say that because you're calling out to God and you're directing your focus towards him 
where it's applicable. And so there will always be people who are grumblers and fault finders. And those people will say, I know what I'm saying when it comes to euphemisms. I know what I'm, com- I'm not complaining. I'm just pointing out the facts. Have you heard that one before? You know, you, you substitute that. And our response in verse 31 in Acts chapter 15, it says the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Which people? The people in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. Judas and Silas, who themselves are prophets, said much to the encouragement and strengthening of the brothers. After spending much time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing and peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. And, and so that's kind of the wrap-up of the first argument, the first sharp disagreement. There's a second sharp disagreement, which we will get to next week. But God decided he's going to show us some conflict inside the church, not only with those who had come in from the outside and imposed their rule or their doctrine, but also between leaders inside the church. And on this particular case, it's between Paul and Barnabas, and we don't know that it was ever resolved. We have no example of it in Scripture. And we'll get into that next week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May he give you wisdom to give a reason or a defense for the hope that lies within you. And may you encounter people this week where you get to share your faith and lead them to the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul and Barnabas and then standing up for the faith. And how, Lord, you laid it out how they argued or made a defense for the faith. May we learn how to do this as well. May we learn how to use our experiences and your word to lead people in the proper direction so that it may add to the benefit they receive in this life and also benefit in the next. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Please stand.